Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you between sessions of Valheim here in the mountains of Utah. Only a tiny bit of admin this week. I'm taking off the holiday season to schedule recordings, play more Valheim, and do some writing in my real job. So enjoy your holidays, and we'll see you in 2023 with more episodes. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is comedy writer and podcaster Sean Sean Baby Riley. Sean Baby is an old school cracked alumni known for his work with fellow Page Break guest Robert Brockway on 1900hotdog.com and its podcast. Dog Zone 9000. Sean Baby is also written and performed for Attack the Show, Adult Swim, Crack.com, and numerous internet venues. Sean Baby and I chat about the strange things he researches, trying to get the tone of a joke across in text, and the balance between creating and reviewing. We discuss good and bad faith in online discourse, as well as the need to punch down, and the lines that Sean Baby makes for himself when creating comedy around real people. We generally solve all the world's problems, so enjoy my conversation with Sean Baby. So I, I thought it was pretty funny that uh, somebody on Twitter asked me to discuss with you the strangest things that we have found in our research. And I feel like I feel like it's a very silly thing. For me to bring up because like I Wikipedia some things once in a while. Right. And you research strange stuff for a living. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting question because I generally like the madness has started before I've even done the secondary research. Like I'm like, this is the weirdest book I've ever seen. Yeah. And then sure enough, uh, I uncover more strangeness. Uh, like uh, recently I did one, we were doing anime week on the website on one hot dog and I do not, uh, enjoy anime. And so I was kind of trying to find a way to circumvent having to watch any cartoons. And so I found these uh, how to draw sexy anime girl books. And I'm like, this seems strange enough. I could make fun of these. Uh, and then I found that there's some, there was some copy on the back of the book that was like, these sexy babes are perfect for you and your child to draw together. Drawing is so wonderful for a child to learn. And I'm like, what, what the fuck are they talking about? And so I looked up the author, which is just standard operating procedure for me. Uh, yeah. found several other books about drawing sexy anime girls with not the exact same copy, but uh, a slight variation of that copy of how great it is to draw with your kids, but also name dropping the topic. So it wasn't just boilerplate that they stuck on a whole bunch of books they were making. They kept rewriting how great it is to draw these naked titties with the children. I'm like, this is so strange. And so I, I, I dug deeper and deeper and found that this person had all these pseudonyms and they were just self-publishing just like garbage, just churning out self-published nonsense with very tiny variations of the same copy on the back of every book, uh, no matter what they were drawing. Uh, and then I, I found that they did a whole bunch of knockoff like Star Wars books and Barbie books and, and whatever. And so I found just this empire of, of trash being done by either one person or a group of people using the same copy uh, about how wonderful it is to interact with your children using these just either illegal or lewd or profane or terrible things. Uh, and so I'm like, that's maybe a good example of the kinds of things I find once I start digging in. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Brockway makes fun of me. Uh, God, I'll give you another quick example. Uh, I was looking up this old game called Versus, and no one remembers that it. it was a real garbage game for like PS1. The strategy guide was completely insane. And so I'm going through the strategy guide. Uh, very poorly produced uh, and laid out. So it's kind of funny in that way that it's just sort of a failure in every direction. Uh, the person who designed these characters, their claim to fame was they were like a artist for Marvel Comics. And so I looked this person up and when they said artist for Marvel Comics, like a, a truly mean-spirited reply might be, what did you do like? The, were you a letterer for Ultra Force? And that's like 
literally what they were. They lived like two issues of Ultra Force as the letterer. And I'm like, I feel like if you're at a cocktail party and, you know, you're hanging out with Jim Lee and you're like, oh, hi, Jim Lee. I'm also a comic writer or comic artist. And he's like, oh, cool. What'd you work on? And you said I was a letterer for Ultra Force. You're like, OK, I I'm not sure we're peers. But uh, I started looking him up and he's like like kind of a sweet older dude teaching martial arts to kids. And I was like, oh, like sometimes you hit those dead ends where you're like, I think I like this person and I don't want to make fun of them. Yeah. Uh, so that happens occasionally in my line of work, but not often. I was actually really curious about whether you guys uh, kind of, when you're trying to develop these, these new things, new, new stuff to talk about for the podcast or to write about on the website, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I was really curious whether you have like a line where you kind of say, okay, we're now punching down. Oh. Let's back off of this. Or do you? Absolutely. You, is that something you think about a lot? All the time. Um, I think about it, uh, God, at least 200 times more now than I did in like the year 2000. Like when I was first getting started, I was, a, you know, a mean spirit. I guess we all were in the year 2000. That's just how <laughs> we interacted with the world. But uh, yeah. But now I definitely think like, who could this hurt? Do they deserve this? Generally, I, I love when I find a, uh, someone who made something that's crazy, but also turns out to be a piece of shit. And it's like, oh, I can just go crazy on them. Because, you know, I guess I met so many people over the years doing things. I would meet people who I wrote about. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, people are like, hey, you reviewed our game. You really made fun of us, but it's hilarious. We like hung it up in the office or whatever. And like, that's that's a nice feeling. But I could tell I pissed some people off. Like I've gotten hate mail from people who I wrote about where they're like trying to start a beef or whatever. Yeah. And usually that's kind of fun in its own way, but for the most part, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. That being said, if someone puts garbage out into the world, I don't mind them knowing it's garbage and knowing that they're getting dunked on somewhere. Right. Well, and that's a really interesting kind of line that I think all creators and, you know, people that create and consume media, you know, they kind of have to try to figure that out at some point in their career because you've got that kind of thing where on the one hand, it's, you know, we all, everybody who's putting something out there, they kind of implicitly accept that possibility of quasi-celebrity status, right? Sure. But also, like, you know, for me, for instance, I don't want to badmouth some author that I might meet at a convention next week and exactly. maybe they turn out to be super nice. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely that. Like, uh, the, the possibility of, running into someone and, and like realizing, oh, you're a real person. And like, you probably hate me for what I did. I think that's fair. I guess when I met, uh, Uwe, I have a Uwe Bull saga. I don't know if you know about, but like he was supposed to fight these like nerds that made fun of his movies. He's like real sensitive about the movies he makes, but he's also really untalented. Yeah. So he had to, he was scheduled to beat up these kids. And, uh, I used to host this show on G4 called uh, attack of the show, which again, I got, it's on TV again. So I guess you could go and watch it. Um, he wanted to come on that show and fight uh, the host. And the host is like, that's crazy. But you know who would do it is our co-host, uh, Sean. And and so I was like, hell yes, I'm down. I'm I, Whenever it's scheduled, I'm ready. Uh, and then he's like, how big are you? Do you know how to fight? And then it turns out like I'm much bigger than he was expecting. And I kind of know how to fight. And so he's like, ah. and the way the story got spun is that he's sort of like a coward. But I think he just didn't want to like like film Rocky four. Like he just wanted to like bully some nerd. And he's like, I don't want to like, you know, go toe to toe with some guy that can punch me in the face. So, but anyway, I went to the premiere of postal, which was around that era. And, uh, I saw him there and I was like, I got to go up and like, give him the opportunity to kick my ass. Like, I didn't want to go up to fuck with him. I was just like, Hey, I wrote that thing about you. He's like, yes, I know who you are, but he like, didn't like want to fight me. He just wanted to explain how like all my jokes weren't like true science. I'm like, well, yeah, they're jokes. Like he just literally does not have a sense of humor. So that's our interaction. But that was the only time in my life where I'm like, the person I'm going to go talk to might want to fight me. Cause it was like, I don't know. I I wrote a lot about him after he backed out of the fight, very much calling him out for, for being a coward or whatever. And, and most people knew I was kidding, but, uh, to this day, I'm sure that haunts him. Well, and I mean, that's like like the ever-present problem with social media, right? Is nobody ever really knows how serious or how uh, how much they're, somebody else is kidding or how much they're just, yeah. you know, they're playing or being facetious or whatever. Like, there's no ability to read another person through the internet. True. And once you start interfacing in the with the world, like, um, 
thinking in terms of how offended people are, like that's virtually, uh, I mean, you've, your, your sense of humor has committed suicide, I guess is how I could put that. So y- you lose your ability to tell when someone's kidding. Uh, I've had f- people find some of my earlier work and say like, I don't know if this guy's kidding or what. And then they'll like say a line from the article that's just so objectively a joke, whether you think it's funny or not. It's like, obviously that guy's kidding. But they're approaching that with this lens of like, oh, but it's kind of sexist or it's kind of like ableist or whatever it was. Uh, and and once you're like trying to identify that, you, you're you're not trying to identify like the tone or the or the joke. Yeah. And so th- there's that problem, too, I guess. Right. And I don't want to turn it. I, this cancel culture, Brian, this like, cancel culture. Right. And I don't particularly want to talk about cancel culture because everyone else talks about it. Um, not good people though. Not, not guys like you and me, (laughs) but like, it is like a, it's this, like, uh, whether or not it's, you know, like a severe problem, quote unquote, um, like it it is a thing that exists and it's a thing everybody talks about. And like, and, and somebody like you, who's producing content on a, on like sometimes a daily basis, Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're. I, I imagine that that kind of thing, you've got to have somewhere in your head where you say, okay, I am very forward about the fact that I do comedy. I'm, I'm always trying to joke around about this stuff. I'm never trying to punch down. Uh, I've just got to say funny things and hope people just let them slide. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I, I, I don't want to hurt people. I tend to like genuinely in my heart, not have like racist and sexist tendencies. Uh, you know, whatever. I, every now and then during soul searching, I realize like, oh, I do have some uh, prejudices in there, whatever. But like, for the most part, I could uh, make whatever joke I want and count on the audience understanding it. Like, uh, like we all did back in the 2000s, I would uh, use the word gay for something that didn't have anything to do with uh, what someone did with their love life. But it was, you know, uh, and yet I did have gay fans who maybe in spite of that or or whatever, didn't get too offended by it. You know what I mean? And I don't want to say like, it was okay for me to do it. I wouldn't do it today. Uh, but at the time, I think people understood like, this is just how whatever this, this type of douchebag talks. He doesn't mean this in a hateful way. And uh, I think if you look at it now, like if you showed it to like a 16 year old kid now said, Hey, read this jokes from the year 2000, they'd say, Oh, this is just hate speech. Like, th- cause they don't understand. Like, this is not really the perspective we had at the time. Yeah. Cause at the time, no one thought like, Hey, this guy's writing hate speech. This, they, it was very, very much like a God. I don't know. Dennis Leary, I guess, is is a good cultural touchstone of how like it was sort of understood that you could be an asshole in a kind of ironic way, and yet we don't really mean these terrible things we're saying. It's just well, and and with and with certain words, like you have like you have certain words that end up being just um, just uh, filler words that that mean a a very particular thing in like a cultural context. Mm -hmm. And then that cultural context changes in, in a very short amount of time. And it's such a weird thing to look back on. Like you said, like using the word gay at the early two thousands. Sure. Very much. I mean, I was in high school at the time and that was just, that's how everybody spoke. Completely normal. Right. And no, it wouldn't have even occurred to anyone to say like, Oh, Hey, you're being homophobic. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, in a way, I suppose we all were, but it, but on such a, I don't know, innocuous way versus someone who like legitimately might say you don't have a right to live if you're not this. But um, I suppose like, like I've used the word insane a couple of times already today. I, I feel like maybe in 10 years, people will look back on that and like, oh, I don't, you shouldn't call stuff insane just because it's like silly and different. You know what I mean? Like we're always trying to find uh, new ways to be better people, I guess. So I, I don't want to, that's why I don't like these discussions of cancer culture just because like at the end of the day we're all we're all just trying to be better let's go people we're all growing up we can still hate each other we can still make fun of each other but like uh you don't want to get uh people outside your target involved in that like if someone is being crazy we should be able to pinpoint words to describe this person as crazy without like throwing everybody in with them that has mental problems or whatever right you, you know what i'm saying I'm, yeah i'm not the guy to draw these lines <laughs> right and the and the lines are like I, I mean, the lines are ever shifting. And I think that giving, I think giving people most, most, mostly the benefit of the doubt with casual things, uh, casual conversation, especially uh, I, like it's like, there's, I feel like a lot of us, it's such a, it's such a hard thing to talk about because you, there's part of you that wants to say, uh, oh, I know it when I see it because you, we all 
been having a conversation with like a new neighbor or something like that. And then they suddenly like throw out a word or a phrase or something. And the way that their tone is, you can just immediately something in your brain goes, oh, this person's a yeah. bit racist. Yep. <laughs> and it's and it's so different. But it then then someone saying maybe the exact same thing, but with a totally different tone, you know, in like a joking atmosphere. And it's. Oh, man, it's so hard to explain, though. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the respect you have for someone's judgment. Like, uh, like I work with Robert Brockway, and he's got very, very good judgment. So when he makes an offensive joke, I, I could almost always give him the benefit of the doubt that that he means it, uh, you know, in a certain way. I, I'm more of the offensive joke guy than he is these days. He's, he's way more uh, on top of it than me. Like, if you want to talk about somebody who day to day, like, thinks about stuff like this, like, he's... He's the one who's usually like, uh, we obviously can't run this. <laughs> You're a fucking maniac. But <laughs> uh, he's, he's our voice of reason. If, if, that, if you could believe that, if you read his work, that's going to be terrifying. <laughs> but for the most part, if someone says to me like, hey, you're like being careless with your words here. You're being, you know, sexist, race, racist, whatever. I generally am like, I get a little pissed off because I'm like, it's obvious to me that I'm not. And I'm like, you got to, you know, you want to have respect for someone's opinion. If, th- if this hurt their feelings, fine. But if they're like telling me like objectively, this means this, I'm like, no, 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 you, you, you missed at least a couple of twists or turns in this, in this joke here. Um, yeah. And, and objectivity is like, it's one of those things with, I don't know, with language and with the internet and all of that, the ridiculousness of like information exchange now, objectivity like doesn't even exist, right? Correct. Yeah. Anyone can play enough games with words that anything can mean anything. And and as soon as you draw the line and you say, okay, we do not use this word anymore. uh, Basically, you made it very funny for someone who's clever to like use that word in a way where they can get away with it. And then you've sort of made it uh, really enticing for someone who is a piece of shit to use that word uh, and then use that cool guy that I just mentioned as like his example. Oh, it's okay if the cool guy says it, but not me. Or when, you know, you, you obviously get what I'm saying, but, uh, yeah, once, once you start like making objective facts about what you're allowed to say and not allowed to say it, you're just making tomorrow really obnoxious for you when you have to deal with the the assholes using that in bad faith. Oh, and the bad faith, it's always going to come out. Yeah. And I, I feel like, uh, we probably waste more time on that than anything. Like, I, I don't know how, I don't want to turn this into like a politics thing, but like if someone identifies with a Republican, like, I just don't even know why you fucking bother talking to them. you like, they don't mean anything like it's just, and maybe they did 40 years ago, but just like the current era, if someone's speaking about right-wing talking points, like nothing they say means anything They're, they, it's, it's garbage. And I, and, and the idea that, that we can go online and have these, these silly debates or the a centrist idea that like, Oh, they, let's listen to some of their ideas. It's like, no, we've, we've, if, if you still think these people are making sense, like maybe your brain's broken. I don't know. Did I solve everything? Did I solve politics? I think we, we did it. Yeah. No, that's covered. I think we're good. <laughs> Man, this is just as long as everyone hears this, we'll be fine. <laughs> the world's solved. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like uh, a great example is that they just they're sort of forgiving college debt in a, in a very small, inadequate way. But whatever. A, yeah. An objective public good. And and then, of course, the Republicans are like, hey, no, you can't do that thing that's good for everybody. And you're like, well, why? And then, and then they start asking these questions like, well, how is this fair to the people that pay for college, whatever? And it's like, you dumb fucking asshole. You asked that question 30 years ago. We answered it then. Someone look under the replies to your own tweet. 17 people just answered it in the last minute. And, and it's just like they keep just asking the same questions over and over as if like, hey, I ended it with a question mark. So I must be smart, right? I must be seeking knowledge. But it's like all of these things have answers. And there's just half the people who decide they can forget that and keep asking the same questions. Like, how come we got monkeys if we, we came from monkeys? You know, like, has anyone ever answered that? I'm just going to keep asking it. It's it's this amazing kind of ability to find an audience who doesn't like to do even the slightest bit of critical thinking. Right. And and then kind of just hammer on those, on those particular people. Sure. And just keep trying to make it look like the world's simple for them. Like, no, it's super easy. Here's... They'll tell you it's hate speech because it is, but there's just two, two genders. And then like, yeah, that's true because my, that makes sense to me. That's easy for me. Yeah. And as, and as long as I, I'm not any of the weird letters, then 
I'm one of the good ones. And that's super easy for me because I'm not one of those non-default things. Something that always kind of gets, something that always gets me kind of, you know, doing that weird, you know, distant pondering thing is that, is this idea that every bit of our cultural norms, every, every tiny aspect of the way we live our lives, there was some point in history at which a few people got together and said, yeah, let's do it that way. Right. And I mean, like with Christianity, like you can literally point to the conferences that they held and said, you know, let's do it this way. Um, you know, but like, like all parts of our, our, our culture, that's just, and when you start breaking it down like that, that these were just normal people who decided, yeah, maybe it's simpler or it's more convenient or it makes me richer, you know, like, right. It's so easy to start breaking down all of these, like, oh, why do we care that we do it this way? Yeah. And those are questions that are, that usually have answers, uh, and we can find them. And then become smarter. And some people do that, and that's great. Yeah. Uh, and some people very deliberately do not, and and that's very frustrating for me. There's a lot of money in making everybody feel like yesterday was better, mm-hmm. and uh, and and that that uh, that they've got to keep X value in place. Right. Yeah. Just it's the heart of fascism. We solved another one. <laughs> right. We're doing this great. <laughs> I, what what's next? <laughs> Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. You made a video game. I did. Uh, it's I, called Calculords. Uh, right. I, I, I thought this was very funny when I found this. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, massively complicated. It's quite a departure if someone only knows me from my dick jokes. But it's uh, it's kind of a math game. Where you're using your math to as your resources to play cards. Uh, otherwise, it's sort of a traditional collectible card game. Uh, uh, the gameplay is sort of like a tower defense. There's these three lanes. The bad guy puts guys in three lanes. You put your guys, and everybody has all these abilities. It's very complicated, uh, but it was kind of a, like a dream idea that uh, almost certainly would never get made unless I personally made it. Because I pitched it to a couple companies, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't have any idea what I'm looking at, pal." I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> so so where does this game where does this game come from like you know because you you can trace your career as somebody who has worked in comedy and um lots of kind of look like reviews and you know sure, all sure. of this stuff that kind of everybody knows you for now so where does the left turn into suddenly making a, a math video game <laughs> uh well i guess uh i do like system designs uh just unrelated to the comedy stuff i do uh I played Magic the Gathering for a little bit uh, back in the day. Uh, I, and I, I really like uh, poking at stuff and seeing what's broken, which I guess is sort of the things I write about in my comedy. But um, like when I'm playing a game, uh, I really like to find like overpowered combos and things like that. Like it's very satisfying to sort of break a system that way. And so I just sort of daydream while I while I play games, while I do other stuff. And and I design all these little systems. And Calculorge was a combination of, of several systems that I thought were interesting. Like, uh, I guess I was also tra- trying to pragmatically solve a problem that sort of bogs down all of collectible card games. I don't know. Do you play games like that? I have in the past. I don't anymore right now. So, uh, so you're familiar with like mana or that this, yeah. this type of thing. So like in magic, you first turn, you have one mana, second turn, you probably have two mana. So, so forth. Uh, so it takes a long time to ramp up and every game has this, this building component that I would get really impatient with in a lot of games. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And so I, the math was trying to solve that so that if I could add a skill element to your available resources. Uh, and so if you're, if you're good at the math, uh, you will have a higher uh, amount of resources than someone who's bad at the math. Just trying to add a skill cap to all of these little systems, which uh, I thought was missing from, from so many, like so many games like Magic the Gathering, obviously someone can be better than someone else at Magic the Gathering, but 
not buy a ton. Uh, once you get the basics, like you're ready to like hang with the grand champion, they'll, they'll beat you with some subtle maneuvers. But, uh, I was like, what if, what if there's nothing subtle about it? What if like a good player was just so much better than a bad player at even just the mana part. And so that's sort of, uh, how that came to be me trying to solve a problem of magic being boring by making a math game. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, And how did it do? Um, it got it critically it did really well i'm terrible at marketing uh it was poorly monetized because of my uh what do you call them ethics <laughs> so like uh <laughs> so even if you were an addict uh and a lot of people became very addicted to the game you can only give me like 11 dollars total and so uh it wasn't like a regular card game where you're kind of counting on a on your hardcore addicts to give you hundreds of dollars so uh obviously it could have been a very big financial success if i marketed it and monetized it in a better way, but it did, uh, it made some money. It's, you know, no one's going to retire from it. I think I saw something somewhere that said that there's a second one. Yes. Um, I did design a second one and we kickstarted it, but we didn't reach the Kickstarter goal and the project kind of fizzled out from lack of funding. But, um, I adapted that actually into a, a third version, which is so much better. So I'm sort of glad that that project didn't finish. I have no idea when I'll finish. Uh, my favorite part of designing the games is like the first month where it's just a billion ideas and you haven't done like all the hard work yet. Yeah. And so uh, I have 11 or 12 just sweet game ideas that are, you know, in the spreadsheet stage, maybe the paper prototype stage, but like, you know. I mean, that that's way further along than I've ever gotten with my game ideas. <laughs> you have some game ideas? I mean, my game ideas have always ended with, man, this thing in, the, in this particular game I'm playing right now could be so much better if it did X. Yeah, that's a great start. And what if I made my own game like this? And then that's about as far as it gets. Oh, see, that's the magic part. That's where you're like, you're imagining just the perfect game. And then you start to sit down and design it. And you're like, oh no, I don't know how they did this part. Or like, oh, this is not going to work at all. And that's when, the, that's when the real work comes of trying to you know, solve all these little problems. Not to mention the real work of balance and art and... Uh- I've, I've got the skills to do that for like a fantasy novel. Sure. Don't have the skills to do that for a game. Yeah, it's, I bet you do. I bet it's just, just the will. Like if you took a year off and designed a game, I bet you could design a, a very nice game. Oh, yeah. I mean, a, a year off. Yeah. That, uh, that'll happen. Right. That'll happen. You know how writers take a year off? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, does your skin crawl? Like if you haven't written in two or three days, does your like skin crawl off your bones? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I, I, I did this thing early in my career where I, I kind of came out the door. I was doing pretty well. And uh, and I would take six months off every time I finished a book. And, you know, when you're an epic fantasy reader, that's a writer. That's still only once a year or a year and a half or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you take four to six months off. And I would just play video games. I'd tinker in the garden. Just bullshit like that. And uh, mm-hmm. And I realized a couple of books back that it was making me absolutely miserable. Like, <laughs> yep. like that time that I thought that I loved and was living for wasn't actually fun to me. Um, and that it was only when I was writing consistently that I was actually happy. Yeah. Finishing something uh, is so great. Oh, uh, so it, uh, it's, it is. You do novels and complicated fantasy novels. So like, you don't get that feeling often. I do. I still do articles. We're still making that dying business model work. And man, I just get that feeling every two days. I'm like, oh, I just finished something. Oh. So uh, honestly, this podcast is part of me going, I'd like a hit of that a little more often. <laughs> You're welcome. Anytime. If you want to, if you find something silly and want to write on one, 900 hot dog, we'd love to have you. Oh man. I get that hot dog rush. I, so I actually wanted to talk to you about a problem that I have that I know that you don't because of the content you put out. <laughs> I have this thing where when ideas pop into my head, I don't write them down and I don't remember them later. Um, Like, like unless it's something like magnificent for a book I'm working on at the time, then I'll try to make an effort. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's one o'clock in the morning, like, cause I have genuinely had these thoughts over the last year or two, because I've been listening to your podcast and really enjoying it. Uh, And I've had these thoughts of, Oh man, I could, I'll, I could, I should pitch this to Robert. Let's, I, I could do, I could do, you know, a, a page or two on this topic. And then the morning comes, I have no idea what it was. Oh, yeah, I take, I, I hate losing stuff like that. I try to, my notes app is just filled with stuff. Sometimes it's meaningless later, but like for the most part, I, I, I hate losing ideas. Like um, 
like when I'm sitting down to write, uh, I love to just like let my mind go all over the the neural map. The the cyber kids call it surfing the neural map. I, 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 maybe they don't, but but I love to just let uh, like I'm writing a joke like uh, this thing. I need to call this person ugly, and then I think, hmm, should I call them ugly? Is that ableist? Like we were discussing earlier. And then I've decided, no, fuck this guy. I'm going to call him ugly. And then I get to think like all the things that are ugly and all the things that suck. And my brain's going everywhere. And then someone will like interrupt me with a text or like someone will come into my office and be like, eh. and I, I, my heart breaks every time. I'm like, oh, I was like, oh, I had this joke. Like, so that feeling of loss that you're describing of like an idea, then not be able to remember that idea. Oh, I hate that so much. And uh, yeah. so that's kind of why I write at night. So I'm just like, no one can mess with me for like six or seven hours straight. And I, I, I get to keep everything I think of. I throw it away later, of course, because I am a writer. Um, but, you know, at least it was there. At least I typed it once. Do you do you ever find yourself kind of overwhelmed with the sheer amount of things that you have to look at to be able to comb out those little kind of gold nuggets that you can put out on your website or on Twitter or whatever? I wouldn't say overwhelmed. I mean, I have a uh, my notes and my partial articles are it, it's pretty immense. But uh, for the most part, I have a system where I, uh, I decide a, at least a week out what I'm going to write about. And then I hopefully can take a day or two just thinking about different angles to take on it. And, um, and then, of course, if it sucks, I have a, some little padding that I can you know, start something new. But uh, I wouldn't say overwhelmed. I, it, I, I, I'm pretty good at focusing on just one or two projects at a time. Uh, if, if it's more than that, I basically don't get anything done. So I, I understand like, the danger of getting overwhelmed. And it's just like, I don't know, something I've trained myself to, to avoid. How do you, something I, I find really interesting is, um, is kind of the construction of comedy because comedy is created in a, in a, it's created in a different way than what I do for a living, you know, which is kind of these, you know, big sweeping narratives. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm really fascinated by the construction of comedy because there has to be, there's a lot of moving parts to it, right? Because you have to kind of have a general idea of what your audience is expecting and what they're interested in and and you have to kind of meet that in the middle but you also have to craft you have to craft jokes that aren't just straight up jokes right but things that you're talking about you know relevance like you and robert for instance um you you know you latch on to kind of pop culture phenomenon mm -hmm. and and you kind of construct uh, pretty much your whole uh, your kind of like online persona around the comedy that you can mine out of that. Mm -hmm. um, do, is, is that something that you have, is that something that you've developed very consciously or is that something that kind of came about just over the course of working for 10 years? That's a, I think that's tough to answer. I think I've always liked the uh, pop culture pop culture stuff is a base just because we've all, we all share it. Uh, there's also something about uh, like finding a movie no one's heard of and showing it to them uh, has an element of like, Hey, look at this fun thing I found and discovered and sharing with you. But also it's a shared experience and that like, you know what a movie is, you know what like a bad movie is. And so we have this point of reference that we can go from. And uh, that I think is just a really good starting point. And then I can say like, here's what a movie should look like. Here's what this movie looks like. And now that's inherently strange. And then, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm all, I'm self-taught when it comes to comedy. So I'm not sure I know how to articulate how to make something funny, but I have been a, I guess a comedy scientist for 20 years. Like, uh, it, Brock, we did this a lot too. It cracked. We'd get these, uh, articles in and have to make them funny, which is just a very functional process of like, we need to keep exactly what they're saying, but just like punch it up. Uh, you know, something every comedy writer has to do, but it's, it's, so there is a, whatever, a science to it that's, that's hard to articulate, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not even sure I'm answering your question anymore. I think I'm just rambling about the, the fluid nature of hilarity. No, I, I, I actually find this kind of stuff really fascinating. I don't, I, I don't follow a ton of American comics, but I, I'm huge into British standup. Mm -hmm. And so I'd listen to a lot of their podcasts. I watch a lot of shows that those guys are involved with. And I'm always really interested in when one of them is kind of dissecting what they do for a living. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like, like for instance, you know, and somebody says, Oh, what's your day? Like to me, I can easily say, Oh, well, generally, you know, I try to write two or 3000 words, do a little editing, answer emails, whatever. But a comedian, uh, like, I think this was Frankie Boyle. I want to say said that he tries to write, uh, like at least one joke a day. Okay. <laughs> and it's, that's such a fantastically interesting thing to me because because to me a joke is 
it's it's so much more nebulous than saying, oh, I've got to write, you know, 2000 words mm-hmm. um, because a joke could be anything for a stand up comedian. It could be anything from, you know, five seconds to five minutes of material. Right. Um, I, I find that stuff so interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've got to establish a premise. You've got to come up with a punchline. And it's it's obviously not 2000 words. Like when I finish a 2000 word article, generally there's. 70 jokes in that some 70 things that I would call a joke. Yeah. Like I think, uh, uh, I write with a lot of joke density. That's sort of my shtick. Um, whether that's obnoxious to people or not, I, I don't care, but, uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, and so one joke a day, it sounds funny, but also like, it's just completely different. A standup joke versus like what, I, what I smash into an article. Um, something I find really interesting about kind of your background is that you kind of, you you seem to have been like your time period of of becoming a public figure, becoming a comedian, um, you know, kind of working and growing an audience pretty closely mirrors the time at which the Internet became a place for pop culture and a place for the world to kind of share uh, all this weird stuff. Right. Um, do, do you think that that's uh, fairly um fairly formative to kind of who you became or the other way around. Maybe I caused the internet. (laughs) I, I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) I'm going to have to rethink everything. (laughs) Can we take this back up later? It might be for better or worse. It might be all my fault. I don't know. Oh man. Well, (laughs) yeah, I would, I would, it's possible. I never really like interfaced with the internet. Like I, I'd get the emails and I'd sometimes read them. I, you know, it's not, I would try to read them all, but I wasn't very good about replying to them because I found myself uh, too focused in on the hate mail and I'd want to like, uh, you know, make fun of them or, or get in fights with them. And, and, and that was, that would be very intellectually inspiring, but not artistically inspiring. So it, like, if I get a hate mail, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do an article on how big a dumbass this guy is. And then that would like eat my brain. And then at the end of the day, it's just like, yeah, but I'm like, targeting in on one douchebag who like isn't worth the attention. And, uh, and for the most part, uh, especially back then, uh, attention was sort of what the internet was for. Like, I don't feel like people are as starved for it now as they were then. They obviously still are, but like back then people just wanted to exist. And so they'd send a hate mail, just hoping you would put their name on the internet and make fun of them. And that would just be like, look, I did a thing. I'm not nothing. And, uh, and so there was like, you're kind of giving them what they want when you when you elevate them to someone worthy of responding to. I, might make, I sound like an asshole, but like <laughs> maybe you know what I'm talking about. No, I I absolutely know what you're talking about. It's it's a it's it's a validation of somebody who is not attacking you to be you know like to be um, a critic, but to just be critical. Yeah, right. Or because um, there's a difference between those two things. Very big difference. Sure. And I guess you'd call them reply guys now. They're, they're still out there. Uh, they just, they're trying to mooch off other people's energy and, and get some attention for themselves. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I guess I was not so much an internet user as a producer. I, of course, used it a lot. But uh, uh, all of the things that people went to back in the day, I wasn't like a big like, oh, sure, I went to Strong Bad all the time. Like, I, of course, did sometimes. But it's not like I got together and discussed internet stuff with my friends. And so uh, I don't think the internet formed me so much as I formed it, I guess is my point. I was obviously joking, but maybe not. <laughs> I, uh, something that, uh, it, it's funny because I, I also didn't feel like I was like an artifact of the internet. Um, I kind of came to being online like later than a lot of people my age. And, uh, and I, I kind of, I didn't find the, oh, let's go be, um, let's go be edgy in some chat room. I didn't find that interesting at all. Right. Um, and, and so funny enough, one of the reasons I was so delighted when I first met Robert was because one of the very few formative things for me from the internet was kind of the golden age of cracked. Yeah. And, and it's weird because I've met quite a few people my age who kind of feel the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and then it's funny to kind of meet guys like you and Robert, like to, to be like, Oh, Oh, you guys, you guys produced a lot of the stuff that I laughed at when I was in college. It's yeah. If you went on the internet between like 
2000 and 2015, either me or Robert wrote it. Like it's just chances are that's, that's who was responsible. Yeah. We, he wrote so much at Cracked. I mean, I did too, but like that Robert touched so much. It went through Cracked. It's funny uh, when we get together, especially with Jason Pargin, uh, like we just kind of know everything. And I don't mean that in like an egotistical way. It's just like we, we have all of the knowledge of Cracked just sort of in our brains, which was so, so, so much of everything. Uh, like everything people know on the internet eventually trickles down into a crack list in between, you know, 2006 and 2012. And like all that just kind of stuck to our brains because we had to edit those articles. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess so. We, we are products of the internet in that way, in that all those lists. I, um, I, uh, something that I find really interesting about what you guys do is that, I, and I think most people kind of dismiss this or don't think about it more likely is that to be able to kind of intelligently dissect and make fun of, you know, pop culture things, mm-hmm. you actually have to understand how a story is creative, how, how characters are rounded out, how, you know, narrative is carried over arcs. Um, right. You have to understand a lot about storytelling. You have to understand a lot about you know, culture, about even about things like politics and world history and things like that. And there's a lot more kind of um, there's a lot more multifaceted stuff that goes into producing what you guys produce than I think most people think about. Yeah, that's probably something you you only notice when someone gets it really wrong. But like um, recently, uh, one of the either Logan Paul or Jake Paul, one of those one of those Paul dudes, he did some movie review of Jordan Peele's new movie. uh, Nope. And he just had such a fundamental misunderstanding of like of, of what artistically the movie was saying and like what narratively it was saying. Like he, he just is such a doofus that his review basically betrayed uh, how he didn't understand a fucking thing that movie was saying. And so everyone's making fun of him for that. And so you can tell when someone's not doing that. And so basically if, if we're doing our jobs right, then we're, we're making fun of a movie and you never at any point think like, I don't think this guy knows what, how character development works. You know what I mean? Like uh, if, if someone says that, then you fucked up. But, uh, but yeah, of course you have to know, uh, what a filmmaker's trying to do. And uh, the joke can be that they failed doing that, but the joke should not be like, uh, look, he, like a David Lynch movie. You can't make fun of a David Lynch movie for being weird. He's obviously trying to be weird. And so uh, you need to, you need to be able to understand art at a pretty high level. If you're going to, if you're going to properly make fun of it, even if you're going to reduce me to just the guy who makes fun of stuff, like at the very least, you have to know how everything works. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So I was actually really curious whether you um, whether you obsess or even think about the pop culture your daughter consumes or will consume as somebody who literally dissects pop culture for a living. Yeah, a a lot, actually, I uh, because she's five and uh, when she was a tiny baby, she watched like baby YouTube. And now that she's five, she watches like uh, streamer YouTube. And I find that to be like just awful just substanceless garbage she's she, there's a couple she watches where i'm like okay these guys are kind of doing their own thing but for the most part uh it's so formulaic in in really hacky ways and so uh i do try to get her to watch you know something more interesting like we like teen titans go it's a good kids program uh and what's nice about that is there's a lot of depth to their like references and so like they did an episode where they turbo teamed 
And so then I show her Turbotain and now she's sort of understanding like the layers that she's going to grow up in. Like everything at this point being made is seven or eight lasagnas of, of previous generations pop culture. And so she's getting a real good, like, I think, metacognition for stuff like that. And when she sees something, how uh, she knows that it, it means what they're saying, but it is also referencing something else. And that could also have a second meaning. And so uh, I, I just feel like she'll be so much sharper than me and my friends when it comes to like analyzing media. And so I think that's nice. I think that, and she's taking to it instantly. And I don't, I don't know. She's my only kids. I don't know how, how gifted she is relative to other children. Plus we're in the pandemic, so I don't see any other children because they're filthy. Uh, but <laughs> it seems like she's getting it. It, it seems like um, that there's so much media to watch that it's easy to pick good stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to put all these thoughts together, but, uh, growing up, we had, we were very country. So we had like two channels that worked. And so when we were left to the TV, it's like, this is shit. We were watching like black and white 50 sitcoms. And, you know, uh, that was a treat if that was on sometimes it was just golf and you're just like, I guess I'll watch golf cause I hate everything. And, uh, and now it's like, you go to YouTube and you can just literally watch anything. I'll tell her like, close your eyes and imagine something and then we'll search for it. And so I feel like that's another thing that kids are going to get that will greatly benefit their brains relative to ours and, and that they can seek out whatever they want. And uh, they're very much rewarded for having a good imagination. Like if she thinks of something interesting, we get crazy fun videos uh, versus me where we had like channel two and three. And that was that was like my imagination when it came time to watch TV. So do you do you find yourself dreading the moment that she starts picking things herself? Um, kind of without any input or oversight from you? Or do you think that that will be a kind of really interesting development in kind of her character? I mean, she, I already kind of let her do it. I will cut her off if she's picked something shitty, but for the most part, she, she exhibits good taste. And, um, and it's, it's very telling about the personality she's developing, what she, what she finds interesting. I like that. But that's cool. Yeah. Now you mentioned you grew up kind of uh, very rural. So I saw you had gone to the University of Idaho. Did you grow up in Idaho? No, I grew up in Oregon, but uh, okay. I ended up getting a scholarship to U of I for, for engineering. There's like a Oregon and Idaho do a lot of like student trading. So I can't remember the undergraduate program, but uh, but yeah, so that's why I ended up at U of I. And it, well, and how did so? Because I, I so I I did not grow up in the West, but I live in Utah now. I uh, I'm fam very familiar with kind of Mormon culture. Like, how was that kind of um, Idaho small town college experience? <laughs> oh, I think it was. I was just talking about this the other day because Idaho is like uh, like a right wing shithole. Like there are Nazi towns. Like Coeur d'Alene had a Nazi march uh, every summer. And uh, which is not too far out of Moscow, but Moscow was like uh, a college town. And so it was pretty diverse. And, uh, you know, it's a bunch of young people trying to be better. And so you, you kind of they had it was a little pocket that that exists in Idaho. I imagine all college towns are like this in in right wing states. So uh, it had a pretty big city vibe because that's what we were trying for as as a people, I suppose. Like we all wanted to be cooler than we were. We knew we were in Idaho and I don't know. I don't know if that's a good answer, but. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I, like when I say I grew up country, I was like 12 miles up the mountain from a, a town with 10,000 people in it. And so uh, like and they were like my folks were preppers. They were they were a bit deranged. And so uh, raising animals and that kind of country stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, you definitely run into a lot of those in Utah still. I'm sure. Um, and I mean, I grew up in Ohio and we still kind of we kind of vaguely knew people that were like that, you know, an hour outside of Cleveland. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you find them all over the place, but I think Mountain West does kind of attract that type of person. For sure. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a lot of towns in Idaho that are, seem to be made up entirely of preppers. Like, like I can't remember the name of the town. There's Twin Falls. So I think it's the one that Bruce Willis bought for a while. And then there's a town near there that's just sort of like this trendy place where rich preppers go to like build a bunker. It's just, okay, why not? It's, it's, it's such a weird, like when you have the rich preppers versus like the kind of the hillbillies that have been there for, you know, 80 generations. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's sort of the difference between a hobbyist and like, like someone who's functional, like who, who's, whose brain is in a place where like, yes, I want to overthrow the government. I want aliens to come like they're, they're living in their imagination versus someone who's like, it's kind of fun. Uh, Cause I, I think there's a lot of appeal to prepping. If like, you're kind of shitty at stuff. Like if you can't make good wine, 
like, that's fine because you'll need wine in the apocalypse. This is for the apocalypse. This is fine. For the apocalypse, all of these canned goods I'm making are just fine. You wouldn't eat them, but like, if you had to, you wouldn't die, right? Like, I feel like <laughs> that's the appeal. That seemed to be for my parents too, because they weren't too good at canning or, or reloading bullets or whatever. But like, it's fine for the apocalypse. Yeah. I mean, it'll keep you alive. Yeah. Maybe if you don't get botulism. <laughs> There's that. Uh, my stepdad used to make this stuff. It was like lard and rice. And he was like really proud of the amount of calories that were in it. He's like, yo, man, there's so much calories in this. I'm like, yeah, but no one would eat this. And it, it doesn't matter. He He's dead now. It, like no one ever ate it. We threw it out after he died. There's, there's, <laughs> but whatever. Everyone wastes a lot. Of, everyone burns a lot of time with their hobbies. This was his. Oh, man. This, uh, but that is true, though. Everybody wastes time and energy and money on the dumb shit that they yeah. do in their spare time. I was... I mentioned Magic the Gathering earlier. I probably put $800 when I was a freshman in college into Magic the Gathering and then quit playing it. I'm like, well, this that's a lot of money for, for an 18-year-old kid. That, that's a huge amount of money for an 18-year-old kid. And I sold it, got a PlayStation 1. So <laughs> Moved on from there. Yes. Yeah, I, Which I was is- into Magic when I was in sixth grade, I think. So I would have been about 12. Okay. And uh, so- I didn't like Magic enough that I would have played with a 12-year-old. You do see those... You'd see those adults at the mall playing with like strange kids. They didn't know those, those guys liked magic too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm always like, I'm always really interested in those hobbies that people get into like magic where like a huge part of the premise is figuring your stuff out and then going and playing against strangers. Um, and like strangers are the last people I want to play games with. Exactly. Yeah. It's, that's the, the wall I ran into. It's like, I love designing a deck. And then I had a few friends that liked to play, but uh, not enough that, you know, we all stuck together and had a magic club or anything. So once they stopped playing, I'm like, I don't have anyone to play with. Or I'd have friends that played, but like weren't very good. And so I would just stomp them and they were like, well, this is no fun for me. I'm like, yes, I can see that. Yeah, I I, I tried to be casual about it. Uh, ooh, this would have been seven or eight years ago. And and I just found that you can't be casual because the, the, the friends that you friends that will want you to be a casual player with them are so much better than you (laughs) and have everything planned out so well that you just get smashed every time yeah yeah it's hard to find that sweet spot of like someone at your level of enthusiasm and skill and free time and scheduling now you have done a ton of different medias like you i think you're probably best known i i would guess for articles sure um but you've done podcasts you've done um You've done work. You've done work in front of camera. Uh-huh. Um, where is your comfortable spot? Oh, articles is like that's the dream job. I've written, you know, screenplays and uh, fiction, whatever. Uh, some a lot of game writing, but uh, yeah, kind of. I would imagine it's safe to say I work in every media, and that's uh, something about an article. I, I love that uh, you can set something up quickly. Uh, like we were talking earlier, how you have to establish the premise before you get to the punchline. With an article, like the premise is just built into it. Like this is an article about this. And like, we're already, we're already halfway done. Uh, I don't have to build like an act structure. I don't have to build like motivation for characters. I don't have to write stage directions and like uh, dialogue. Uh, so it's just like, I can just smash in jokes. Uh, after several hours, I've got thousand, 2000 words and uh, yeah, it's, it's done. And it like has a beginning, middle and end. And um, yeah, do you, f- I tell this to everybody. I, I was just a, uh, uh, I was over at Ty Frank's house. We were uh, hanging out, talking, writing, and he writes. Uh, I I just talked to him like three days ago for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. He loves to talk writing, and he's a brilliant writer. And I'm just like, dude, an article. You yeah. fucking, you come up with an idea, and if you really want, you could be done with that whole project in a night. And it's just the best feeling. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, I don't know why no one else does it. Like, there's just no one who does it left. Even cracked is just kind of like pictographs and regurgitating of old articles and so me and broccoli are like like this this rules right why why are we the only people that that know about this i think it's just hard to monetize maybe Mm -hmm. yeah i'd I'd imagine the monetization is the difficulty there you know it's yeah uh, because clearly there's an audience for it like you guys have a great audience yeah um but i think so but yeah it's i don't know about great fine i'm I'm part of that audience and i think i'm pretty great you're one of the good ones (laughs) <laughs> Most of those others, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, our 
our patrons are they're they're good we actually have really good fans like at, at this point in my career i've had uh so many toxic fans and so many moments where i'm like god i just fucking like the cracked fans were kind of there was there's like a, a certain class of them class of them i sound like an asshole again uh there's some of them like really smart and and, and like experienced the material in a, in a really high level right like like they uh they knew what you were trying to say. They added their own research elements or details and uh, appreciated the jokes. And then there was people that were like, they would have like a weird expectation from the title and then come in and like, you know, say something racist. You know, it's just like the, those were bad people. And there was so many people that read cracked that like, there was just a certain percentage of them that were that shitty type of person. Uh, and so that was a tough era to interface with fans. But like, as it is now, like uh, for the most part, everyone on the Discord is really funny. Everyone on the site's pretty funny. It's it's very strange. Uh, I think when I was doing shambaby.com, uh I I would get so many emails from uh weirdos. I also really hated people when I was younger. I'm not quite as annoyed by them now, but like back then I was just like I didn't want to be bothered and uh and so that also didn't help, I suppose. So, uh, anyway, I I do very much appreciate uh feedback from readers. Um and even when it's bad, you can I'm I'm trying to gather all these words together. The nice thing about cracked uh, is that you got feedback from so many people that even when it was bad feedback, you could kind of use the use that as a percentile percentile of uh, how bad an article was. So if you get like a six percent hate mail an article, you're like, okay, that that article was a piece of shit. And then um, if you got a, if it was much higher than that, uh, generally it was because uh, you said something political or you said something about women or whatever. And then like you know the Nazis came out and had something the review bomb in your article, whatever the fuck they're doing. Um, so. From a sheer number standpoint, you can take that input, and that's very valuable as a writer to understand what's working and what's not working. And um, you need to have that. I, I should warn anyone if if, if anyone's like listening to this, getting oh look, I get that fucking Sean baby writing advice. But like, <laughs> once once your numbers get high enough, like you can statistically tell how good you're doing from your input. But that doesn't work until it gets high enough. Like if only four people write to you and three of them say, "Hey, you're great," and one of them says, "You suck," like that's useless. That like that's like statistically, uh, that's all outsider data. You can't, you can't use any of it. Uh, so I guess that's my hot tip. Be popular enough that lots of people comment on you and then you can tell if you're good or not. Right. <laughs> I'm sure that will work for most of the audience. Yeah. You can cut off this. I'm just fucking lost. <laughs> I lost my train of thought at least 10 minutes ago. <laughs> that's all right. This is random. Um, okay. I, th I'm going to ask you this because I have never heard it covered despite listening to your podcast and reading lots of your articles. And I'm sure that I missed it somewhere. Where does Sean baby come from? Oh, um, there, there was a girl in college. Uh, she was, uh, from Korea, uh, hadn't been in America too long. Uh, and she really liked me. And whenever I came into the room, we, uh, she would scream Sean baby. Uh, and that just stuck. And it was so enthusiastic and silly that like, I had no problem with it. And so I was like, yeah, this is, this is nice. If you guys keep calling me that, it's fine. And so it, like, it really was just a nickname I didn't give myself that I, I, I've always liked it. I say that it's fun because um, it's hard to say with any venom. And so people try it all the time. Like, oh, Sean, baby. But it sounds like they're like, it sounds cute. Like that sounds like they're, you know, playing around. Yeah. So I, I, I do like that. Yeah, I, I like that. That's that's funny that you kept something kind of because that transition between, you know, like a, a um, regular life and kind of online life is often very weird and awkward for a lot of people. Yeah, that's true. But the fact that you kept something that transitioned like that is really funny. Yeah, I try to stay genuine. For the most part, I write, uh, it's highly edited. Like I'll write sort of conversationally and then I'll like make it smarter and funnier through, you know, second thoughts and third passes and all that. But um, for the most part, if you're reading something I wrote, I'll, I would stand by as like, that's the type of person I am in real life. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm doing a character, I guess is my point. Uh, yeah, that that's that's actually a man that that's one of those. I didn't even think about the idea that you guys kind of you and Robert and and a lot of the other kind of cracked writers that kind of came out of that era. I, I guess I kind of always assumed that there was a bit of caricature to everything you did, like a little bit of playing up parts of yourself playing you know playing up comedy here and there um i think that's safe to say yeah but you but you don't consider that playing a character i don't think so i would i think once once i'm saying something that i in real life would probably disagree with like think that's a character like uh yeah i think it's 
maybe it's simple as that, but it, maybe it's another one of those, you, you know, it when you see it, Yeah. like if, if you showed me something I wrote and I was, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't agree with that at all. Then I might say, oh, it's due to character. That's where I was doing the character. But uh, it's probably just because it's old and I was a dickhead. I mean, <laughs> weren't we all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I also think there's enough depth to people and that, that if I do write something uh, that I don't disagree with at a different time, it's like, you know, give me a couple of days. I might agree with it again. Pe- people are complicated. I, don't I always know. tell my wife that like she can't demand new answers from new information from me because you always have to give me like two or three days to think about something before I am able to like as something as simple as like planning meals next week, (laughs) give me a couple of days. And like, so when you take, when you take really complex ideas about politics and philosophy and religion and all of that stuff, like you got to let that shit percolate. Yeah, you got to. And and if you don't, if you like have rapid fire answers to everything, I don't trust you. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that too much of the internet, uh, I guess you'd call them content creators, I think live in that world where like, oh, a thing happened, let's say a thing about it. And it's like, I, I don't, it doesn't seem like everyone's thought this through yet. I may, Maybe you need to wait. And so part of the nice thing about me, what me and Brock were doing is like, we're, we're kind of creating stuff outside of that like whatever you call it hemisphere yeah uh, and so that kind of that kind of cycle of kind of immediacy yes it's it's really nice uh and cracked was um i would say a, a bad combination of that so there's a lot of stuff on cracked that we would write that's you know evergreen funny stuff versus like oh uh, you know a thing happened we got to get an article up we joke about that a lot on our work slack like uh, jason pargin will come in and say like oh hey do you guys have have your review ready for house of the dragons yet and like, it's just kind of a, our internal joke that like, oh, thank, how nice is it that we fucking don't have to care about the stupid dragon show or the Johnny Depp trial or whatever. Like, I don't need to have 6,000 words on the, on Johnny Depp. No, no fucking Trump article in the, in the can. Right. And I don't want to have to have an opinion on everything. Yeah. It's really nice not having to have an opinion on everything. It's exhausting. <laughs> and, and almost always wrong. It's, you're, and if you're the type of person who doesn't like to admit you're wrong, then you're just going to make yourself dumber and dumber and dumber until until you elected Donald Trump president. Like that's that's like how it happened. Like people had this immediacy, had to throw out their opinion, and then they couldn't admit their opinion was wrong, which meant they had to have a new opinion about how that old opinion kind of made sense if you think about it, right? And it's it's just dumbness, layers of dumbness all the way down. I I had a I had a realization probably around I was around twenty six twenty seven. And maybe this was, I think this was probably a very formative moment for me. But the realization was that if I am the smartest person in the room, I don't want to be there <laughs> because I, I'm not talking to anybody interesting. Yeah. I'm like, like if I feel like the most intelligent person there, then, then I'm in the wrong place. It's just, I'm not bettering myself. I'm not, I'm not hearing about somebody's interesting theory that's above my head, but maybe I can grasp it kind of thing. See. I might be the opposite. I like being in a room and being like, oh, all these people are fucking stupid. Because then you can get like a wet t-shirt contest going. Like you can like do some, you're hanging out with stupid people. That's a lot more fun. I don't know. I just, that's the way I look at it. <laughs> uh, see, I, I do love that kind of gung-ho kind of kind of attitude though. Because I never had that when I was younger. I was always very shy, very timid about everything. And uh, and man, the the. the I always, I always really uh, was super jealous of the people who were able to kind of walk in and read a room and, and, you know, get something going or, you know, kind of know who they wanted to talk to immediately, that kind of stuff. I don't know if I have that ability, but I can get something going. If you really want to have a wet t-shirt contest going, like we can make that happen. (laughs) Got to find some, some real dummies though. That's the key. You're in the wrong rooms. You keep finding rooms full of smart people. Right. Get the hose out. They're like, oh, I, I certainly do not want to be here for whatever that hose is for. <laughs> and smart people always have British accents. Yes, that's true. <laughs> it tips them off. <laughs> well, I have kept you for quite a long time, but I like to end each episode by asking every guest, what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Well, I just moved to Portland about half a year ago, and we are kind of going down the list of... Uh, hipster stuff in our area we're in southeast portland which i think is the hipster food capital of the world um god what did we get uh I probably i got some like bone broth ramen just today like five minutes before i got on here that was so nuts it was like japanese korean fusion ramen place and i was like 
this is nuts. I'm not a food critic, so I can't describe it to you, but it was, it was that like thick, like milky bone broth with like smoked pulled pork in it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. How about you? Same question. Uh, man. Uh, so same question for me, honestly. So about six months ago, I got really into mangoes Sure. and because I, I had never eaten a fresh mango before and I randomly got fresh mango and I loved it. So good. And my wife was like, oh, luckily you're in Utah, a mango capital of the world. <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I just go outside and pick them. Um, but I, yeah, so I like, but then like, there was like a three month stretch where I could not pick a good mango. Every mango I brought home, it would either rot before it got sweet or it, or I would cut it open way too early. I could not figure out the secret from it. And, uh, I was at the store yesterday, grabbed a couple of mangoes, cut them up for lunch right before this podcast. And they were both dynamite. Fantastic. Uh, you know, the, uh, do you eat like just regular mango or do you eat it Mexican style? Um, what's Mexican style? You do like some cayenne, some lemon juice, some salt. I think that'll fix your mango problem because you can have like a mango that's not ready to eat. You do it Mexican style as delicious mango. Well, I'm I'm definitely keeping that in mind for next time. Okay. Because that sounds great. Yeah. Hot, hot mango tip. Oh, I love it. That was comedy writer Sean Baby. Thanks again to Sean Baby for coming on to chat. You can find Sean Baby's social media and website down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Talon, Brian, and Will Lebelski for their backing on Patreon. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.